Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is a frequent guest that we've had on, I don't know how many times, Dr. Mike Walden, who is the William Neal Reynolds Distinguished Professor of Agriculture and Resource Economics at North Carolina State University. Uh, and uh, Mike is uh, as close to a state economist as we have. He's well-respected by uh, almost everyone in the economic area and uh, is often called on by the state of North Carolina for his opinions and his thoughts. He comes to state with a PhD from Cornell University and has been at state, NC State, since 1978. So no one can say that he has trouble keeping a job. <laughs> thank oh, you very man. much, Don. Great, great introduction always. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you for being with us. Well, you know, we keep marching down the recovery period from COVID-19. Uh, Mike, uh, just generally speaking, I, I, I I, I sense that we're ahead of the game right now where we certainly would have thought we were March a year ago. Um, what, what's your take? Where, where do you think we are? Oh, I think that's totally accurate, Don. Uh, we, are, we are in a recovery period. Actually, the economy has been growing since, since last May, uh, but April of 2020 was the, was the real uh, uh, champion, if you will, for a decline in the economy. But we've been recovering since last May. Uh, and I won't get into the, the, the weeds of these details, but if you look at one of the aggregate measures of the economy, GDP, gross domestic product, we're just about back to where we were pre-pandemic. Uh, most people look at the labor market, and I want to talk, uh, hopefully we get to a lot of aspects of that, but in terms of the labor market, uh, we are making improvement. We are adding jobs recently, not at a, a rapid pace, but we've certainly added jobs, uh, a lot of jobs since last uh, April. Uh, unemployment rate has, has fallen. Um, the, we're, we're now in a, in a period though, Don, it's, it's really interesting to me and many economists where we're beginning to worry about some other things that aren't directly related to the pandemic. Uh, there's a lot of talk about higher inflation. Uh, inflation's really been a dead issue for most of this century, maybe averaging one to 2%. The latest reading we had, Don, for overall inflation, and this includes everything, is on an annualized basis, 5%. So we can maybe talk in more detail about whether that's a warning sign or not. Uh, there's another concern. If inflation goes up, usually we see interest rates go up. And when, if interest rates go up, we often see the stock market react negatively to that. So uh, I think we're turning our attention away from are we in a recovery? We know we're in a recovery and we're worried a little bit about maybe some of those aspects or results of the recovery, particularly if it's been a very strong recovery. Well, Mike, you know, it's kind of funny, and I, I, I want to get into the labor market right off the bat, because on one hand, when you say we're creating jobs, on the other hand, everywhere I go, I see signs that say hiring now. Uh, and I know we in our company, we have uh, 32 openings in, in our company, and we're a relatively small company compared to many. Uh, but uh, almost every fast food place you go to, almost every retail store, uh, has a sign up hiring now. Mm -hmm. uh, what? How did that happen? Yeah, and that's something, Don, that I don't think was on the, the uh, radar for a lot of economists. I thought when we started to open up and jobs became available, people would flock back to them. And the concern would be, would we have enough jobs generated for the people who want them? It's the exact opposite. We have a lot of folks, particularly in hospitality and, and uh, 
uh, services. Uh, you're, you mentioned your firm, of course, uh, where there are openings, yet people are not applying. And this has been a big contention of debate. And I'll talk about some of the elements there. One, on the positive side, what we know is that a lot of people have used the last year when they weren't working to uh, upgrade their skills. And uh, that has allowed them to move into other jobs and leave the job that they had, particularly if it was a lower paying job. So I think that's one factor. <clears throat> I think a second factor is that there are still folks who are worried about going out in public. I know, I know many, you probably know many too, who are still worried about COVID being out there. Maybe they haven't been vaccinated. And so I think that's holding some folks back. I think childcare is also an issue if children are home from school. Now, of course, we're in the summer period, but some months ago when, when children were home, they were learning virtually. Uh, parents didn't, weren't able to find people to watch them, so they had to stay home. The big debate, of course, as you well know, has been over whether we have been, we as a country, whether the government has been too generous to people without jobs. Uh, this has many elements. For example, we have the stimulus checks that went out. Uh, we're now going to start next month a uh, $300 check for every child that every family up to $150,000 of joint income can get. Um, and then we have had the federal supplements to state unemployment compensation programs. You have to remember, people have to remember, states run, each state has their own unemployment compensation system, has their own payments, they can be different. Uh, the first round of stimulus that went out in March of 2020, the Congress said, look, we wanna, we wanna equalize these a little bit, so we're gonna add $600 a week on top of whatever folks get from their state. Now that, the, the subsequent stimulus plans that went down to 400, now it's 300. But there's been some research that suggests that this is uh, holding some people back from, quite frankly, looking for work. So I think it's a, it's a combination of elements here. Now, I do think that all of these elements will ease as we go through time. For example, $300 a week that people who are unemployed are now getting on top of what they get from their, their state. That's going to expire in September. Obviously, kids will be back, hopefully back in school in September. Hopefully by September, people feel a lot better about going out. So I think we will see a more robust labor market and, and more people being willing to go out and apply for jobs. But I think it's gonna be a different labor market. And I think that's gonna cause a lot of folks, maybe you're thinking about this too, Don, of looking at technology. If you're having trouble getting people to do work, may, let's look to technology and see if we can do some of those chores, some of those tasks with technology. And of course, technology gets better and better every day. So it's going to be a different kind of labor market. Well, it is. It is interesting. And of course, as you said, on one hand, uh, uh, I mean, it's almost like the PPP plan. Uh, uh, this, these universal solutions to a specific problem sometimes always end up uh, with some unintended consequences. And I think that's exactly what's happened here is some people that really didn't need the money or getting it and using it, and I, you know, they, they didn't ask for it. So it's not their fault, but uh, it, it is causing them to say, okay, well, wait a minute. If I go back to work, I'm going to lose this. Or, or the other side is I might not lose it, but I don't need the money. I think you're absolutely right. I think if we had it to do over again, there'd be a lot of different, there'd be a lot of changes in the various kinds of COVID relief programs that went through. But I have to remember, or I, 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 I prompt myself to do this. I remember a year ago, we didn't know uh, 
where this was going. We didn't know how bad the recession was going to be. We know people were suffering. We knew businesses were suffering. So I think the Congress and at the time President Trump wanted to get that money out there fast. So I think they overcompensated. In fact, I just compiled some numbers and we maybe want to get in this depth a little more. North Carolina's revenues in the state are skyrocketing. We're now having budget surpluses rather than budget deficits. And one of the reasons, Don, is if you look at the money North Carolina has gotten from all these COVID stimulus plans, it totals over $80 billion. And yet the state economy, we now have the final numbers, the state economy in 2020 shrunk by $5 billion. So we have $81 billion that came in. We have $5 billion, however, that went out. And so we netted over $70 billion. That's mathematically, you can just do the math, that really accounts for these extra billions of dollars. In fact, the latest uh, state numbers show that, that we're looking at $6 billion over the next three fiscal years that just uh, six months ago, the state forecasters were not expecting. So I think this is a result of the federal government overcompensating rather than underplaying this, they overplayed it. And, uh, but I, again, I can't follow our decision makers because we were, we were in a, an area where we just didn't know where things were gonna go. Well, I think uh, you were one of many economists who said, well, I'm not really sure we've got a lot of choices because the, if, we, if the worst case is the worst case, if we don't do something, we're going to be in a mess. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, if we had done, I mean, there's, we all, every time, this is my, I think as a professional economist, sixth or seventh recession. And there's always the debate about why don't, when a recession comes, why don't we just let the market, let, let the market and decision makers take care of it. Recessions kind of weed out the weak. They make the strong stronger. I think this time around, you could strongly make a case, even if you believe that, when you put a recession on top of a medical emergency, federal government really couldn't sit back and do nothing, not that they were contemplating doing that. So once again, I think the federal government said, we're going to do something. And if we err, we're going to err on the high side. We're going to push a lot of money into the economy. And I think we're seeing some of the, the results of that right now in terms of the labor market. Many people simply looking at what they're getting from unemployment compensation, what they may be getting starting next month from for child support. Uh, what they may be getting, for, getting from other programs. A lot of these are not taxable. You have to remember that this aid is not taxable. And you can have a situation where you have a, an individual or a household, if they're working at a low paying job, where they are much, much better off taking the assistance rather than going out and working. And I don't begrudge them at all. They're, they're making the right choice in terms of what's best for their family. Now, again, when these programs run out, run their course, then I think folks will, in that situation, will look at the labor market more closely. But right now, I think it mathematically is just correct that a lot of folks are better off simply taking the assistance rather than working. Are you, how concerned are you about the federal debt? Uh, because we're actually, of course, increasing the federal debt by a yeah. great deal. Well, I, I have concerns. They're probably not all the same concerns about that people have. We're, we're not going to default on the debt, number one, that Congress will not let that happen. And number two, we can make the payments. We can fit them into the budget. Uh, number three, China is not going to come and want all their money back. In fact, uh, the $6 trillion the federal government has borrowed for the COVID relief programs, most of that, two-thirds, was borrowed from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, of course, gets their money by printing money. Uh, but I am concerned about the fact that if the federal debt, the massive federal debt, or the increased federal debt pushes interest rates up, that's going to make it more expensive for everyone to buy a house, buy a car, 
finance anything. It's going to cause the financing by the federal government to be higher. And I think effectively it'll mean that we will have lower, slower economic growth in the future. So the way I, I like to look at this is we thought there was an emergency. There was an emergency, a medical emergency, an economic emergency. We essentially borrowed from the future, brought that money back here, which means that when we get out in the future, that money's not going to be there. So we're going to grow at a slower pace. And that's really the way, that's the major payment that we're going to be facing for this increased federal debt. I still always go back to that famous Framwall commercial, pay me now or pay me later. <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, I mean, I have people when I give talks, people say, well, isn't the federal government, someone, a federal agent going to knock on my door one day and say, hey, this is your 30,000 share of the federal debt pay up now. No, that's not going to happen. So I mean, you can present these things in very scary ways, but I think you can present them in more logical ways. But yes, there certainly is a cost to the federal debt. The other thing I might point out is Social Security. I just went on Social Security. Social Security is uh, is facing a turning point in about six or seven years. They're not going to have enough money coming in to pay make payments out. So that's another problem we have to solve. And we'll talk about that in another segment uh, of uh, this morning's program. This is uh, uh, our chance to talk about all these economic things with Mike Walden. Uh, our uh, resident expert on the economy. Uh, and we will be back uh, to talk more about these and other concerns that uh, we have about the economy when we return with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. When you went car shopping, you meant business. You ace vehicle history searches and test drives. You out salesmen to the salesman. Now you've got your wheels. If you manage that, you can get your retirement plan on track. Visiting aceyourretirement.org can help. With 401k tips and smart saving strategies, you'll have the info you need to get more for your future. Go to aceyourretirement.org because when it comes to speeding past financial challenges, you're an ace. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest is uh, Dr. Mike Walden. Uh, we've uh, introduced him earlier in the program, but he has, of course, been with us I don't know how many times. And if you'd like to go back and listen to some of the previous uh, programs with Dr. Mike Walden, you'll see he's far more uh, apt to be correct on his projections than he is wrong. But he is the first one to say that economists... Uh, uh, have a two-way mirror all the time. And, and of course, everything that comes up, change, whatever you were thinking yesterday could change tomorrow because of uh, different factors. It's, it's like a, a balloon, the economy is. You push in one place, it's going to push out somewhere else. That's absolutely right. And, and I, I learned a long time ago, probably about four decades ago, that 
maybe when I got out of graduate school, I thought I had all the forecasting ability. I'm, I'm much more modest now. If I can, if I can line up the elements that are, gonna, that are going to determine our future, I feel like I've accomplished something, but being able to predict each of them, very, very, very difficult. Well, of course, North Carolina still is uh, an economy that uh, also is pretty much divided. We've got uh, 20 or so counties that are just growing, still growing very rapidly and having announcements about job uh, uh, increases and so forth. And then we have 80 counties, uh, some of which are doing okay and some of which are in, uh, uh, in a period of, uh, well, recession for all practical purposes. But uh, one of the markets that is so interesting to me right now is the housing market, because right now, uh, one, the cost of building a house has gone up. Uh, lumber prices have backed down from a couple of weeks ago because they were right. just sort of out of sight. But building a house is expensive, but there's a big demand for them right now. And the realtors tell me that they can, you know, in most cases, they have an asking price, but they're getting more than the asking price when they finally make a sale. Well, this is another example, Don. I mentioned the labor market being surprising right now with uh, a lot of folks not, not going out looking for work as jobs come back. The housing market's been a big surprise because usually uh, during a recession, the housing market slumps. Uh, people can't afford to take out loans. Uh, they don't have money to put it, make a down payment. So the housing market falters. And of course, we saw that big time with the so-called Great Recession of 2007, 2009, the housing market really led us into that recession. This time, again, it's another contrary aspect of the, the COVID-19 recession. This time, the housing market has thrived throughout the recession. Yes, you mentioned all the problems on the demand, on the supply side. We've got the rising costs of materials. We have the inability of many builders to build. We have fewer builders out there, Don, right now. A lot of them, we still haven't had a recovery there since the Great Recession of 07, 09. But I think the big difference has been on the demand side where people have, due to the stimulus payments, uh, due maybe to, to, uh, to other factors. Uh, you have to remember a lot of people continue to work during this, this pandemic. Uh, we're fortunate enough to be able to work remotely. Uh, and yet they maybe got additional money from the federal government, for example, with stimulus payments. Uh, people have actually been flush with money on average. I don't want to paint a broad picture and say everyone, but I was just looking at the numbers today. If you look at personal income in North Carolina, I mean, that's really the basis for people to spend. What's their personal income from all sources? That actually went up. That went up in 2020, not down. It went up. So people have had money to, to go out and look for homes. They've had time maybe if they're, even if they're remotely working, they've, they've maybe decided, hey, if I'm gonna work more at home, we need a bigger home, we need a different home, et cetera. And then interest rates, of course, have been very, very, very low, historically low. So if you have to, to finance the purchase of a home, which is the case for most people, uh, no better time to, to borrow money. Now, as you indicate, I think that's beginning to change. We have seen some, pullback in the prices of some of the inputs, particularly lumber, and interest rates have actually begun to scoot up a little bit, which I think is going to inhibit the ability of people to, to borrow. So I look for this really, really hot housing market to being, begin to cool down in the next several months. The supply chain is also a question. Uh, we have a personal, uh, Jason, of course, works with the ACC magazines that our company mm -hmm. publishes. He's the business manager. And, uh, he, we were getting ready to put out the preseason football book and the public, the printer comes back and says, we can only give you 10,000 copies. 
Mm-hmm. They normally order twenty-five thousand. They can't get the paper. Right now, I hear this is going on in a number of areas where the supply chain is working down. How did that happen? Because you would think that uh, uh, during this time that supplies would actually have gone up. Well, because a lot of people were, were told in the states, unless you were an essential industry, you were told to stay home, not go to work. Uh, some industries were totally shut down. Um, and, and of course, uh, in many industries, you did have a large number of people that, that were ill, that were sick. International trade, which is still uh, affects a lot of our supply chains, that, that uh, very much was curtailed during the pandemic. Now, things have improved in the last several months, but in a lot of these cases, it's not like you can flip a switch and everything is going to go back the way it was uh, pre-pandemic. I think we will get there. So I think these things will be resolved. And, and, and Don, where, where this is important is in this debate about inflation. I mentioned inflation has, is running at, at rather high levels compared to the recent past. And as you might expect, there are different views on this from economists. Uh, one set of economists think, hey, this is really a problem. It's going to be with us a, for a while because the federal government has pumped all this money, $6 trillion into the economy, more than enough to compensate for what was lost due to the pandemic. And uh, we just got too much money chasing too few goods and services, and that's going to cause inflation to stay elevated. There's the other, another camp that says, no, this is all supply side problem. As soon as we get those supply sides, uh, sides fixed and everything back running normal and people want paper, they can get people. People want toilet paper, they can get toilet paper, et cetera. Uh, then we'll be back. And so we're, we'll see. We'll see in a several months whether that 5% stays elevated or as we get into the fall and things get back a little bit to normal, we see that go down. Um, I'm, I'm probably in the former camp. I think we're going to be living with higher inflation for a little bit longer. But um, we'll see a test of that in several months. The other thing that, uh, of course, most companies uh, seem to be, uh, many, many companies have large cash on hand mm-hmm. and are not in the market for borrowing money, which would uh, seem to keep interest rates down some. Uh, there's a, a the term I hear in business communities, there's a lot of money on the sideline, money looking for ways to make an investment. Uh, how do you see that playing into this picture? Uh, that's a that's a good question because I think what a lot of investors are trying to figure out, Don, is how is this post-pandemic economy going to be different? I mean, take office buildings, for example. I was talking to a friend of mine this morning who's an architect when we were talking about the office building market. He's very pessimistic, even in Raleigh, that if you have office building space, you're going to be able to get back to where you were pre-pandemic. Uh, I countered and said, well, as long as Raleigh is growing, I think a lot of that space is going to be filled up. But there's there's a debate there. And there's another element of this is in, will the workplace change? How many people are going to continue to remotely work? Uh, we had uh, about 5%, only about 5% of people pre-pandemic were remotely working. That went up to 40% at the height of the pandemic. It's fallen back to somewhere between 20 and 30%, but a lot of experts think it's probably going to stay in that, in that range. Uh, that could be a major game changer. And another, another game changer here, uh, as I heard, uh, I think it was early this afternoon, where the uh, bipartisan group of senators uh, have forged a deal on infrastructure with the president. And this is going to be traditional infrastructure. Internet's going to be in there. I think we're finally going to get internet into our rural areas, which I think would be a big game changer. Where I could foresee 
lot of remote workers say, hey, I don't want to be in that expensive, big, busy city. I'm going to move to a small town, a rural area. That could change a lot of where people put investments. So I think that's one of the problems and why you have a lot of money in the sidelines. Business people, investors are trying to really figure out how is this post-pandemic economy going to be different? You know, one of the things I've jokingly said, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of serious about that, I've never really worried about China bombing us because they have so many investments in the United States, they can't afford for us to go down. What about Russia? Does Russia have uh, a lot of investments in the United States? Do uh, they have that same concern? No, well, well, they don't, they're not nearly the, I mean, despite the, the, the summit uh, last week with uh, President Biden, President Putin, I mean, Russia is a uh, second class power. They just don't have the population. They just don't have the economy. They're essentially, they're sort of like a Saudi Arabia. Their main source of their money is the sale of energy, both oil and, and natural gas. And beyond that, uh, they've got a population problem. They're actually depopulating. Uh, China is the country we really have to watch. China has the people, China now has the industry. China has the, the wealth. They're increasingly having the military, uh, both on the ground and space, where they are going to be our major competitor. That's my biggest worry in terms of geopolitics. Of course, this is outside of my area expertise, but obviously it affects everything, including the economy. Uh, how is the competition that I think is going to be paramount over the next couple of decades between the US and China, how's that going to play out? Is it going to play out where, yeah, we may have a few uh, tips here and there where someone flies into the other's uh, airspace or, or, or goes in, the, we had a ship go through the uh, Taiwan Straits the other day, which is international water, but China got upset about that. But th that's not resulted in war. Or, or could we go to something like a full-scale war? And that that's my biggest worry. And uh, I think the way we have to deal with China is we have to militarily make sure that we have enough to protect us in all areas. And then I think the other made the major way is to have a strong economy. Does what is the I, I read so little about the economic relationship between China and Russia? Does Russia have the same fascination with China that they have with the United States as far as trying to meddle into their politics and so forth? Uh, no, I don't think so. Again, I think they, they um, I don't know that, I mean, China, China and Russia has had a quirky relationship. I mean, obviously, uh, China imported, Mao Zedong imported communism from, uh, from Russia. But then in the, I forget which decade was the 70s, they actually fought a war along the China-Russia border. And when President Nixon went to China, he was taking advantage of that, uh, sort of that schism between China and Russia. But again, uh, China's economy uh, just overwhelms Russia's economy. And uh, that's essentially where your, your strength derives is the size of your economy. So, um, yeah, I'm sure there are places in, in Central Asia uh, where China and Russia may have some conflicting interests. But right now, all you hear about is, is China. I mean, China with their, their new Silk Road, uh, their overland road where they're getting their markets to, to Europe. They're setting up... Uh, uh, points of interest in various countries around the world so that they can have ports like we have ports, et cetera. You don't have Russia doing that. Russia just doesn't have the capacity to do that. So China really is the, the main competitive power that we have to watch. Were you surprised that any of the population figures that came out when the census finally did come out? I, I, I wasn't really surprised about much of it. What about you? Well, the, the big news there is where our, our birth rate is extraordinarily low. We would be depopulated if it wasn't for the fact that we have substantial immigration. Of course, that's a whole other issue. 
many countries in the world are facing that. China, for example, just lifted their one-child policy. Now they say to their Chinese people, you know, many children they have because China was facing depopulation. Russia's facing depopulation. Japan, most of the countries of Western Europe. Uh, we're a little better than that, but no, I think it's it's a whole different world out there. If you look at families, um, they they uh, you have you have a married couple, a married partnership. Uh, they're both pursuing careers. Children are expensive. Children are time consuming. They want to delay having children. So the decision there to have children has drastically changed, uh, particularly away from having them early and having a, a large number. Um, that at some point may become an issue. And again, one, one solution to that is, and I'm not taking sides here in the current debate, one solution to that is, is to allow more immigration. I think we need controlled immigration, but obviously we need labor in the country. We need people. We need people to be innovators. We need people to be workers. And the world is facing a population issue. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden, who is the William Neal Reynolds professor at NC State and teaches economics and has for a number of times, author of a number of books, which we'll talk about in the next segment as well. When we return with uh, our guest, Mike Walden, we'll be talking next about the infrastructure deal that was struck uh, by Congress uh, just this week. And we'll do that right after these messages. I spend a lot of time in the garage but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me, your handy chains, dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com, brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting A Teenager Learning the Lingo GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym stands for greatest of all time. As in, spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Now once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. Our guest is Dr. Mike Walden. He's been with us, I don't know how many times, but uh, plenty. And we always look forward to his insight because he's someone that can uh, explain the economy and what's going to likely to happen and how it will affect us in terms that even I can understand. And that's saying a lot. Uh, Mike, uh, we uh, want to talk first. Uh, we want to talk about this infrastructure deal and that was uh, the compromise that came out this week. Uh, and uh, apparently it's going to be passed into law now. But before we do that, are you working on any books? Uh, you are always uh, very prolific in uh, writing interesting books. What are you working on right now? I am. I think I'm a book addict, both in terms of reading, in terms of actually also writing. Amazon, Amazon Box will probably be on our front porch uh, every three or four times a week with another book. Uh, my big problem is where to store them. 
Uh, I think I've dedicated a wing almost to the NC State Library. Uh, but yes, I am working amazon getting into everything else because they started out just selling books that's yeah that's right that, that's the main way i use amazon is through books and that you're right that was bezos first uh, first venture uh i am working on a new book which i think is uh very apropos it's a book about the post-pandemic economy but primarily in terms of how it could impact families uh where families work uh how they work uh, whether uh, remote working and maybe a remote location can help families deal with their constant choices they have to make in terms of time and money and uh, demands on their time, fast-paced life where you really can't sit and smell the roses. So I have a number of chapters looking at, at how in the future we may be able to not, not only have a work delivered to us remotely, how we can have medicine delivered to us remotely. I have a chapter on how retail trade is gonna change, for example, the role of drones in delivering products. Uh, I talk about the real estate market, how the people were to move out of the big metropolitan areas to a small town, say at Kinston or uh, a small town, Murphy, North Carolina, wherever, as long as you get high-speed internet, how you could cut your housing costs in half and maybe be able to get rid of one of your vehicles. So it's a focus on, on a perhaps a, a new way of living that we could we could have post-pandemic uh, that could perhaps elevate the standard of living a lot of folks who now have, have to live in a metropolitan area, but may not have to in the future. Interesting. And uh, looking forward to that. And of course, uh, Mike also has a number of other books that are already out. You can find those out by going to Amazon, for example. Yes. Uh, what do you... Uh, <laughs> Talk about the infrastructure uh, deal that was struck this week. Um, this has been in the news. And uh, um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that's sort of interesting is while the Democrats have control of the House, the control of the Senate is so so very thin. It only takes one senator to knock it out from being in uh, control. And so uh, for all practical purposes, the Senate still has the right to hold up uh, the major proposal that uh, uh, President Biden proposed initially on infrastructure. Uh, but uh, I think he was well aware of that. I'm not sure that the rest of his Democratic Party uh, felt as uh, much uh, a sense of compromise as perhaps he did. But uh, so who are the winners and losers on this and, and, and how is this going to work out? And what do you think about it? Well, uh, yeah, the president initially, or I guess it's still out on the table, uh, uh, offered an infrastructure uh, bill, which is, I think, a couple trillion dollars. The controversy there is that he had what we call traditional infrastructure, which are usually hard products like roads, bridges, internet, I think most of us would consider internet now infrastructure, uh, railroads, ports, etc. But he added to that what, what economists would call social infrastructure, uh, human capital, which which is actually a concept of economics, where your skills uh, are just as important as as the road you travel in. So we had money in there for for to help people reskill, childcare, and some other things, and that was uh, a point of contention, particularly with Republicans. And so his big infrastructure bill has not gone anywhere. So what's been happening in the last several weeks is a small group. I think it's about ten senators, bipartisan. I think actually five from each party have been working together and they've, they pretty much have taken just the traditional infrastructure part 
And then they've been working amongst themselves to get agreement. And then they've been working with the administration. And today there, there was an announcement that they've all agreed and the president has agreed to back this smaller traditional infrastructure plan. I think they've, they've, they've agreed how to pay for it. Uh, I think it's uh, under a trillion dollars, but it would be money going to traditional things like roads, bridges, uh, airports, uh, uh, internet would be the big new thing there. Now, this this obviously has to go through both chambers, and there's no assurance it would go pass in the House. No assurance because of what you meant. You, you said, uh, Don, with the Senate. Senate, of course, was structured by our founding fathers to be much more difficult to get things passed. It was sort of the the uh, counter to the house where all you, all you need is a simple majority. But I think most people view this as positive that first of all, we have something that's bipartisan. And secondly, the administration is agreeing with it. And I think everyone agrees in terms of traditional infrastructure, there are a lot of needs out there, a lot of needs to, I, I had a uh, occasion, I had to be down in um, Elizabethtown the other day and of course uh, rode down I-95, a lot of construction there, still a lot of bumps. I mean, anyone drives around North Carolina knows we need some improvement there as well as internet. If we can get in a high speed internet in every nick, nick and uh, corner of North Carolina, every rural area, every small town, that that is an enormous advantage to being it for those towns to sell themselves to businesses, if not simply to households and say, hey, if you're a remote worker, come live here say in beautiful Goldsboro. And uh, you can have a small town atmosphere, a lot less costly and still get your work done. So I think that's gonna be key to our urban rural divide and narrowing that urban rural divide here in North Carolina. Well, broadband, of course, I think nothing uh, advanced its cause any more than the pandemic because all of a sudden mm -hmm. we realized we had two great lessons we learned. One is that uh, telemedicine does indeed have quite a future. Yes. Uh, in uh, those smaller communities and also uh, instruction. Uh, mm -hmm. Both of them uh, were showed up to be a significant need. How long will it take to get the infrastructure in and broadband? What, how, what, if the money's there, how long does it take to sort of complete the job? Well, this is an interesting question, Don, because I think it hinges upon how is the internet going to be provided. I mean, when people think of internet now, most people think of, for example, I'm in West Raleigh. Google just went by and they buried their lines underground. Uh, I don't use them, but I have a service that traditional way it's it's uh, strung from the telephone cord. But anyway, it's cable. You have to put out cable. And the reason rural areas haven't gotten that is that uh, to go down a road in an in a urban area, you might get 10, 15 people uh, latch on. If you go down a road in a rural area, maybe you get one or two. The economics don't work out. Uh, but that's the way it could be provided. But I think the exciting thing is that there are people who think that all of us, maybe not just rural people, will get internet from the sky. And I don't mean the, tr the satellite internet we now have. Those things, those satellites are like 25,000 miles up. That's why there are problems often. This is what's called low orbiting satellites, around 500 miles up. And they're better quality, better speed, et cetera. And none other than Elon Musk. Uh, is is really moving fast on that. He's he's got the re reusable rockets to get the satellites up. He already has prototypes up there. So I'm not convinced <clears throat> that when all is said and done, that that many of our rural areas might not get satellite from these these low or might not get internet from these satellites. So I think that's something that um, that that we get to see. And actually, the federal government through the FTC has been putting some money in Musk's ventures. So. Um, um, that's going to be exciting to watch. 
Well, uh, as I said, I think we all learned during the pandemic how important it is. And I think uh, it's one of the things that seems to have great bipartisan support. Um, I know a, a legislative bill in North Carolina passed, I think it was unanimous, uh, I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, let's move on now to uh, your forecast. <laughs> I hate to ask you this because they always put you on the spot. What do you think is going to happen to the stock market the rest of the year? <laughs> well, I always like to go back and hearken to Milton Friedman, who when I ask that, would invariably say it's going to fluctuate. Uh, I think this, you know, there are always multiple factors here. I think, number one, the stock market likes the fact the economy is growing. We're probably going to have a very rapid GDP growth rate this year. We're, we're, we're going to add the jobs that obviously makes companies more profitable, makes uh, people able to afford things. We still got the stimulus money in there that I think will help buy. But what, what might hold the stock market back are inflation and interest rates. Stock market doesn't like higher inflation. It doesn't like higher interest rates. So I think we're going to have a, a battle between those two. I think the, the economic growth, I think, is set. I think where the disagreement is, is how, how, how much of a problem is higher inflation going to be? I mean, I already have seen it, but what, is it going to last? And will interest rates go up significantly? I think if that happens, we could we could see maybe the stock market be stopped in its tracks, maybe retreat a little bit. So um, uh, and that makes it hard for investors. No, that's why I don't I don't give specific forecasts on the stock market because I don't know. Uh, I, again, my standard advice is always uh, diversify, especially if you're in my age category, 70 and above. Uh, you're close to you know, your life uh, being fulfilled. You want to have access to that money eventually, and you don't want to worry about market timing. Just have a diversified portfolio. Probably as you age, you move a little more towards safety. Consider things like annuities. That'll give you a, a specific amount for as long as you live, but uh, very, very hard to time the stock market. Well, you know, uh, of course, I, I, I'm older, older than dirt, and so I remember those <laughs> days back in the mid 70s where interest rates the prime rate got into the 16 17 oh, yeah. range mm -hmm. yeah my first mortgage was double digits yeah yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And so we're, we're not talking about that kind of interest rates we're no talking no, about I, one of no i no i don't think we are we're, we're talking about again inflation i mean right now we're riding around five percent with the blast over the last year maybe up to six percent but i don't see us going into double digit rates uh, which means that maybe the average mortgage will go up, uh, what are we at? I don't know, three, four percent, uh, might go up two percentage points. So, yeah, um, certainly better than it was in the late 70s, early 80s, but much more concerning compared to where we've been. I mean, the, 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 the century, the 21st century uh, has been the century of very, very low inflation, very, very low interest rates. And, and other than the uh, uh, stock market drop during the uh, Great Recession of 2007-2009, it's been very, very good for the stock market. And I think that shows you the stock market does well when you got low inflation, low interest rates. So that's what I would keep my eyes on in terms of concerns about the stock market, those two factors. The stock market and uh, all the economic uh, factors should be pleased with the way that uh, President Biden is repairing our relationships with our European friends. Uh, true, I think, yeah, I think, um, uh, I, th I think the, the stock market likes certainty. I think what they see in President Biden is they sort of know where he stands vis-a-vis -vis these uh, international agreements like uh, Paris Accords and whether you agree or not, Paris Accords, NATO, et cetera. I think President Trump 
was a little more of a disruptor and you didn't really know where he stood. And so, now some say that, well, you know, there were some benefits that he, he, he was a disruptor on Vertical that made it hard for our enemies to figure him out. But I think, I think overall, uh, President Biden's a little more predictable. Uh, he's got a track record there so people know where he's going. So in terms of having an environment where you know what tomorrow's gonna look like, uh, investors probably feel better in that regard with the current administration. What would be the tip for us to watch for for rising interest rates? What uh, thing can a consumer look at and say, okay, this is probably, uh, for example, if the, the supply chain returns to normal, will that slow things down? No, if the supply chain returns to normal, that's good for keeping interest rates lower because that means that we're, we're getting more production. Uh, that, that, and that's, that's really the point of those folks who say inflation is not a problem. They argue this is just temporary and, it's, and we're getting 5% inflation now because those supply chains are not fully back. And so that group, this group of economists say once that supply chain gets fully back, once we get all the jobs that need to be filled, once we get people in those jobs, we're back, uh, then we're going to have normal production. We're not going to have these backlogs. You're going to get products when you need them for your production, and that's going to calm inflation down. So that's the betting of the folks who think inflation is not going to be a long-run problem. They think, yeah, it's temporary. It's high right now. People don't like it, but it's not going to be a long-run problem because we're going to get the supply chains back. And when would that occur? Again, I would think if, you, if you're in that camp, you're probably looking at the end of the year. The things will be back to more of a normal situation. Our guest is Mike Walden, and we all have one final segment coming up right after these messages. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, he's been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives. But he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. Dr. Mike Walden is our guest, and we've talked about all sorts of things, basically the economic situation that we find ourselves in these days, uh, our economic recovery from uh, the pandemic and the job markets and uh, all that sort of thing, and We've talked about interest rates and, and possibly inflation. One thing we have not talked about are the cyber attacks uh, that we've had. Uh, Mike, th this is a this is a wild card. This, I mean, this can really be disruptive to almost any industry. Uh, the uh, ransom uh, uh, 
that uh, some people are having to pay to stay in business is uh, is surprising. Oh, you're you're absolutely right. I, I read a book, uh, Don, a, a couple of weeks ago, a new book written about space, and it wasn't in terms of exploration and uh, and sort of trying to find another life, that kind of thing. It was a strategic look at space and how space is the next area of where you're going to have military competition. And the, you know, it was just very, very um, uh, troubling. The author talked about how there's already technology that maybe the Chinese have, even the North Koreans have, where they could turn everything off in our country. I mean, not just selected industries, just everything. The country go totally without any power or, or light or anything due to an attack from space, particularly on the satellites that we have in space. So uh, very, very uh, disconcerting. Of course, and, we, and, of course and, the other side, we have the same power on them. Well, this, that's true. And uh, although this author claimed we, were maybe, we were maybe weren't pushing as, as fast ahead as some of our, as some of our adversaries, but uh, yes, I mean, the, um, um, uh, I'm not a, I'm, I mean, I spent a little time in, in the military and ROTC, but I certainly don't have any background there, but I can always remember the, the danger of fighting the last war, that, you, that you, you build up your defenses and build up your, your offensive tactics based on the last war, and you forget about, hey, people are trying to change the last war to the new war, and I think the author's point is, this is where a lot of the competition is going to come, military from space and that fits in very much to the cyber attack so yeah i think that's uh that's a very very big danger i hope we got a wake-up call from the two cyber attacks and i hope maybe there's some money and if we do have a new physical infrastructure bill maybe there'll be some money to help us with our with our electric grid etc but yeah clearly that's a, that's a whole new dimension to our to our security so let me ask you this, how, uh, generally speaking, how would you rate the North Carolina economic situation, the North Carolina economic health compared to other states, both in our region and across the country as well? Uh, I would rate it very, very good. And I'm talking in aggregate. I mean, of course, we have issues just like other states have issues. But Don, if you look at the, the two major metrics that most people looked at at the state level to sort of compare states to states during the pandemic, one, of course, was the death rate, the COVID-19 death rate. Uh, the other was job loss. And then, of course, you express both of those numbers on a per capita, per person basis. And if you do that for all 50 states and you sort of think of a four quadrant presentation where you got some states that are high on both, New York State would be another one. You have other states that are low on both. And then you have states in between high on one, low on the other. North Carolina was in that, that coveted quadrant of low on both. In fact, we I think we had the lowest uh, COVID-19 death rate per capita and the lowest job loss rate per capita of any state in the Southeast. So I think North Carolina is going to come out of this and is coming out of this pandemic with a very, very strong reputation for being what I call a safe state getting through this pandemic about the best way any state could. And I think that's gonna bode very, very well for companies considering coming to North Carolina, for people relocating here in North Carolina. So I'm actually upping my growth rates for the state, uh, long run growth rates for the state. For example, rather than having 13 and a half million people in 2050, which I predicted in, in one of my books, I'm gonna probably pump that up to about 14 million. 
I think we are going to see more people come into North Carolina, more businesses come into North Carolina, more entrepreneurship, more growing of businesses here in the state. Of course, we have issues. We have folks who are at the lower part of the economic ladder. We need to make sure they get the right skills to move up. We have issues in terms of geographic divides. We've talked about that. I'm actually optimistic with the possibility of getting high-speed internet all over the state. So I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about North Carolina. I think we, we have a great state. I think we got through the pandemic just about as well as any state could, and I think we've got a great future. If you were uh, on a program in New York City, uh, and I ask you the same question, what would your response be for uh, New York State, but more specifically New York City? I'd, I'd be troubled. Um, and not that New York State or New York City doesn't have great economic assets, they do. There's some things that only New York City can offer. There's some ministries that are that are headquartered there, uh, but New York City, of course, has been troubled by a lot of crime, increases in crime, uh, safety issues, et cetera. I think that's going to be the challenge of the of the new mayor, whoever that is, that they need to to do whatever needs to be done to present New York City as still a safe place that people can live in and they can visit, the businesses can do business in. Uh, so I would be I would be very very. Um, um, challenged by what's happening in New York City. I think I mentioned that I just pre uh, just went back to my hometown of Bessemer City, which is mm -hmm. six miles from town. And Kings Mountain will, on July 1 or thereabout, will be opening a casino. It's a temporary yes. building at first, but they're going to have a big, 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 big casino operation in Kings Mountain. How's that going to affect that area? And what will that mean for the state of North Carolina? Now that we have a casino on I-85. <laughs> well, you, you have obviously opposite camps on that. There are people who say we, we state shouldn't legalize gambling. State shouldn't be involved in the gambling. So we shouldn't have a lottery that, that it's a lose lose for most people. But the other camp says, look, people are going to do it. Uh, and you might as well have them spend their money here. Uh, I think if properly uh, presented and, and, and properly staffed and, and particularly have the casino in an area that had some other amenities besides just the casino, I think it can be a positive for the local community. Virginia uh, just recently um, loosened their standards on allowing casinos. I know, um, I think uh, Danville is, is opening a casino. They're trying to attract people, for example, from the, from the Triangle. So I think there's a lot of interest there. Uh, I think the more casinos there are, probably the less positive impact they might they might bring for an area because you're going to be spreading that money around many different places. As you look at the legislation pending on the federal level and also the state level, uh, what do you see that we should be concerned about and how might that affect some of the uh, projections that you've talked about? Well, of course, one of the things that's going through the General Assembly right now being debated is whether the state should get uh, to stop receiving that extra $300 a week for unemployed people. I think the Senate, uh, I was correct, I stand me correct, I think the Senate, uh, initial Senate vote was positive on that. Uh, of course, that's, that's going to be sunsetted in, in September anyway, so that's a big debate. But the other fascinating thing for me about the General Assembly is we're in the budget period and, the, and North Carolina is flush flush with money. Uh, if you compare the budget projections uh, for the general fund on that were made by the fiscal research division in February to the ones that were just released, I think two weeks ago, the fiscal research division upped their forecast for general revenue uh, monies 
by $6 billion for the current fiscal year and the next two fiscal years, up by $6 billion. So the general what, Assembly, what, what, what contributed to that? What, what it, was all, such a, it, it was all the money coming in from the feds, $81 billion from all the, the, the COVID programs coming in. That, a lot of that money got spent, so it gets taxed by sales tax, became income to some people, et cetera. And we're seeing this around the country. A year ago, I, I, I live across the street from the vice chancellor for finance at NC State. He was very worried about NC State's budget. There had to be layoffs. He said maybe even layoffs of faculty. That would be severe. Right now, uh, NC State and most state agencies are flush in money. So I think that's going to be a challenge. And of course, uh, there are those in the General Assembly say, hey, we want to give some of this money back to citizens. So there's, there's a strong faction who wants tax cuts. There are others saying, no, no, this is our chance to spend on things that we've not been able to have the money to spend on, have the money to spend on in the, in the, in the past. So we're, we're obviously going to have a debate here. And of course, you've got there are three, three, three actors in this debate. You've got the Senate, and you've got the House, and you've got the governor. But very, very different situation this year than last year when everyone was worrying. Uh, they were they were concerned about how tight the belt was going to have to be pulled. And now this year, it's the belt has just flown off, and uh, there's just money everywhere. Well, and, and of course, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, having too much money can be just about as big a problem as having too little, because you get a little haphazard about it, and sometimes you throw it around. Uh, more, much more generously. So that, that while that's nice to have that problem, it does not also have some unintended consequences that might occur because of it. Oh, absolutely. One of them, Don, is that if this this the surplus, the six billion dollars over the, the current and the next two fiscal years, is due to that COVID money coming in, and that and that COVID money isn't going to come in forever. We're going to stop, presumably. Uh, then you go back to a smaller budget. So I think the question there is, do you want to do a lot of things with money that make where you're making one-time expenditures like infrastructure, or do you want to put it in programs uh, that you're going to have to support every year? And maybe what if you don't have the revenue in future years? So yeah, a lot of challenges here, even when you are flush with money, uh, just like you have challenges when you don't have money. Well, I, I guess I'm going to end the program the same way we started it, Mike, by just simply saying that Compared to last March and especially last April, um, things are uh, uh, so much better than we feared they might be that I guess we should all be celebrating. Well, I think we are. I mean, I think number one for me is the vaccinations. We got the vaccines. Uh, I, I've been, I've had my two for, for a long time and we're now able to go out without masks, a lot of places. I mean, things are getting back to normal. Obviously, we mourn those people, I think, what, 13,000 in North Carolina, 600,000 in, in the nation that, that died from, from COVID-19. We mourn those, but uh, we're still largely intact. Uh, the economy is coming back. Uh, people are smiling again. We still have issues, uh, and, and uh, we still need to work on my, one of my biggest concerns, Don, and we have mentioned is that I do think that technology is going to become a bigger player in how jobs are done, which means that people don't, who don't have a good skill may find themselves out of work. So I think we do need to be watchful of people who may be in business industries that start to change how they do work and whether we see a lot of people laid off and whether we need to be ready to reskill those people on the upside. So uh, I, I think a lot, we're always going to have challenges, but I'd rather have these challenges that are related to economic growth rather than challenges that are related to uh, a recession. 
Mike, wonderful. And thank you so much for your comments. You've given me just enough time to tell everyone if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or share it with a friend, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that. carolinanewsmakers.com. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us again next week on the same group of stations all across North Carolina. So until next week, same time, same station. Have a nice week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.